Hi, everyone. This is Representative Dan Miller. Thank you for joining us here at On the Table. With me is Nick. How's it going? That's right. This is just Nick. It could be any Nick. Doesn't matter which Nick. It's Nick. There's only one Nick. Is that true? There's There's one Nick. For the purpose of the podcast, there's one Nick. There's one Nick. Okay. Well, we're here today. Look, we just want to give you a little bit of an update here before you start listening uh, to our podcast. Uh, What you're going to hear is a, uh, well, basically a town hall that we put on in relation to the state of water in Pennsylvania. So this is a virtual event that you could watch if you want to see it in its entirety on our website at repdanmiller.com. So there are aspects of the program that will make reference to some visuals that obviously on this podcast, you won't hear, right? Or see. Obviously not. But you won't see. You won't see them. No, they're not even described incredibly well. But you will online if you want to see them. But you can online. So if you do want to see it, by the way, you can just go on, Rep Dan Miller, you're fine. Uh, Otherwise, we... In, well, I hope you'll just enjoy the podcast that we have here. And look, to be honest, too, why we came up on the water issue is that there's so much to talk about. And I think people kind of forget um, the reality. I know in Western PA, we, we often think about so much in relation to flooding, uh, what happens in our neighborhoods. Uh, we have storm uh, water problems. There's no doubt. Uh, we have Alcasan issues to talk about. Um, but we also have areas of our state that until I think most of last year, they like 16 counties were like in drought, like the entire year. Very bad drought, yes. And that really impacts farmers, you know, and it infects, you know, people's water supplies and things like that as well. Well, and I think people, you know, also don't realize too how big agriculture is as a state uh, for, an, for an industry. So, look, we wanted to kind of dip our toe in, so we are very glad to present to you the following. Again, if you're looking for all the information, please join us at Rep. Dan Miller. Otherwise, enjoy on the table. Nick, are you are you in this are you in the town hall? I'm not in the town hall, but I have enjoyed listening to oh, it. Okay, so, well, that's all right. See, you have a Nick recommendation. Please join us. Thank you for checking out On the Table. As you all know, we tend to do a fair amount of events uh, in my office. We always try to um, kind of um, bring some attention to the issues that people come to us about, but also take you through some of the process that I do and my office does uh, to get ourselves up to date and to understand, um, you know, some of these issues. Uh, I was uh, talking to our uh, present, our presenters and our, our guests a little bit ahead of time. Some of you may know uh, science was not exactly my strong suit when I was in school, uh, so there's still a lot of learning and things that I have to do, and, uh, and that's what a bit of this is. So we try to be sure that uh, it's beneficial to everybody who watches at home and myself, and then hopefully thinking about how we could be sure our policy decisions in Harrisburg are reflective of the needs and the challenges that we have today and, and what it needs to be for tomorrow. So so thank you for joining us. Of course, if you didn't catch it, you are here. So you are uh, here at our state of the Pennsylvania Water State of PA Water event, and we have a great uh, couple guests who are going to help me understand a couple things better. Uh, so I'm going to introduce everybody with a quick bio. And make sure we all understand. Then one by one, we're going to be bringing our guests up. Our guests are going to give you some presentation, all of us a presentation on, on each part of their areas of work and expertise. And then we're going to have a Q&A uh, part of it as well. Now, um, for questions, um, you can send some in. We do have a couple that was already done. You can make use of the uh, chat feature, or you could email to us at repmiller at pahouse.net. Now, again, if watching this recorded that's not going to be that helpful but uh if you're watching this now it is helpful so please do keep that in mind okay uh but we will um you know try to get to as many as we can before we have to let our guests go it turns out they are very successful and in demand people and i cannot occupy them for hours and hours on end so let's hear who we have and then we'll start up so um First, as an introduction, Pennsylvania has seen record rainfall and a growing number of extreme weather events at times over the last decade. Here in the South Hills, we are certainly not strangers to water issues and have been under a federal consent decree for water management for many years. Uh, But different parts of our state have different water needs. Some have too much, some have too little, and we need and we adjust to uh, changing patterns. As we adjust to changing patterns, patterns, it will become increasingly more important for business and life needs alike that we take a comprehensive look at our water systems. So uh, that's sort of the nutshell. And we have three great guests. So let me go first to uh, Andrew uh, Warner. Andrew is the uh, director of the Penn State Water Initiative and PA Water Resources Research Center. 
Andrew has been working for more than 30 years developing and implementing environmental water and water infrastructure projects, as well as conducting research, facilitating and teaching and advancing program and policy innovations. His experience as a practitioner includes work across the United States, as well as in Africa, Asia and Latin America. Andrew worked in the public, private and nonprofit sectors until recently joining Penn State, where he serves as the director of the Penn State Water Initiative, the director of the Water Resources Research Center and as an associate research pr professor affiliated with the Department of Eco Ecosystem Science and Management. So thank you so much for Andrew. We'll, we'll be with him in just a moment. moment. Also joining us is uh, Dr. Emily Elliott. Uh, she is the co-founder and um, of the Pittsburgh Water Collaboratory and professor at University of Pittsburgh's Department of Geology and Environmental Science. Uh, Dr. Elliott is the direct, uh, as mentioned there, I apologize. She is trained as an ambassador through uh, the National Academies of Sciences and the 2018 recipient of the American Geophysical Union's Salzman Award for Excellence in Education and Mentoring. As a professor in the department, um, she um, uh, her research group examines the tight coupling between human activities and reactive uh, nitrogen distributions in the atmosphere, ter uh, terrestrial and aquatic systems. She is passionate about the importance of interdisciplinary geoscience for addressing sustainability challenges, advancing system and inclusion in the geosciences, community-engaged research and science communication. Now, what's interesting too is how I'm putting together a whole bunch of words that typically I don't use often. So, but thank you, a lot of great work there. And also joining us is Susan Weaver. Uh, Ms. Weaver is um, an environmental program manager in the Office of Water Programs at the Department of Environmental Protection, focused on compacts and commissions, um, support state water plan efforts, and the Coastal Resources Program. She has a BS and an MS in chemical engineering, and she's a licensed uh, professor, um, professional engineer and is the Commonwealth Drought Coordinator for the state. She's been employed in the in the environmental field for over 35 years with both environmental engineering and regulatory experience. Most recently, she was in the Bureau of Safe Drinking Water, where she focused primarily on the water resources used for public water supply. OK, that's a mouthful. And look, this is why we had to get these people together, because individually, um, when I read some of this stuff, I have no idea what we're talking about. And we need to know what we're talking about, because so much, as we mentioned, whether it's for water for agriculture or dealing with uh, floods, if it's dealing with drought conditions or, um, you know, sort of enjoying uh, all that we can do on our lakes and rivers. Uh, water is a big part of what we need to talk about here in Pennsylvania and what we need to understand in Harrisburg as how to manage and prepare for the needs of tomorrow as well. So all that being said, our first guest uh, that we're going to hear from is Andrew. Uh, so I'm going to invite Andrew to come on up. Uh, and turn his camera on and join, join us. Um, there he is. Andrew, thank you so much. I'm going to kick it over to you for an introduction. And again, thank you so much for being with us today. All right. Well, thank you very much, Representative Miller. We, uh, I can, I'm, I'm sure I can speak for the other, other panelists as well and saying that we very much appreciate you um, hosting this session and uh, the attention that you're giving to, to water as a, as a critical resource in, in Pennsylvania. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to just start really with a, with a couple of quick slides. Um, I won't won't spend much time at all, but uh, I was asked to do this as, as a bit of a, a stage setting, if you will. Uh, I'll be talking about the hydrologic cycle. Um, I won't, again, go into a lot of depth and a lot of detail, but just wanted to um, start by, again, laying the foundation a bit. Um, before I do that, though, I want to I want to highlight this point as as a, as a as a starting point, just to highlight the fact that, in fact, when you're thinking about the world, the world in which we live, the places, the landscapes where we exist. Um, we're actually water creatures ourselves. We, I think we too often lose sight of the fact that every person is between 60 and 65% water, all right? So if you were to take your body and look at all that it's made up of, 60 to 65%, typically somewhere around 60% if you're if you're a woman, 65% if you're a man, of your body is water. Um, I mean, quite simply, we are bags of water. And I mean that in the most complimentary way uh, I, I, can, uh, I can imagine. Um, so you can see 
it starts with us when we're thinking about water and water issues. It starts with uh, with our, our our bodies and um, all that we need to to be to be healthy is really uh, fundamentally driven by water. Um, so think of yourself as part of this hydrologic cycle that I'm going to be that I'm going to be talking about now. Um, all right. So the hydrologic cycle is um, is really something that I think most of us uh, were exposed to, were introduced to. Um, through school, probably in middle school, maybe in high school. Uh, you talked about the hydrologic cycle. I'm, I'm sure some of you probably listened more than others, um, but basically it's what we also experience on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, even though I think majority of people don't tend to think about these things on a day-to-day -day basis. As Representative Miller indicated, uh, we tend to only think about water and water issues uh, when something goes wrong. Um, so let's put this into just sort of a, a quick context about how water moves around the world. Um, it is a cycle, so there's real, really no beginning and end. But if you if you start by picturing yourself stepping outside on a on a cloudy day and we've got stuff coming out of the out of the out of the sky, uh, precipitation. It's either rain or snow, depending upon temperature and other conditions. Um, in Pennsylvania, we roughly get uh, somewhere around 40 inches of precipitation a, a year um, on average. That obviously ranges year to year. We have relatively dry years and relatively wet years, but on average, about 40 inches of rain per year. Um, and then once that rain comes down to Earth, uh, a few different things happen to it or can happen to it. If you picture just a drop of water, a raindrop coming and coming down to the surface, a few different things can happen. It hits the surface. It might land on vegetation, trees, bushes, grass and the like, uh, or bare soil. From there, it might evaporate. About half of our water that falls from the sky evaporates um, or is transpired. Transpiring is, is just that process by which after water moves down into the soil, plants take it up with their roots. They use it to grow. And then what they don't use in that growth process, they give back through their leaves uh, to the atmosphere. So the combination of direct evaporation and transpiration, the plants giving water back, about half of the water that falls in Pennsylvania uh, actually goes back into the sky. It moves downwind uh, from Pittsburgh. It may come here to State College where I am and fall on us as rain or snow, or it may go further uh, to New York, New England, or off into the Atlantic. Um, the portion of water that doesn't uh, either get pulled up by plants or, uh, or directly evaporate, um, some of that runs off. So you see that again if you are outside in a rainstorm, maybe it's raining a little bit on the hard side, you see the water starting to run off in certain areas, and that's just when uh, the soil can't keep up with the rate at which the water is falling. So some of that starts to run off, and it'll make its way uh, to our streams, to our rivers, to our lakes as it as it flows downhill, being pushed by gravity. Um, the the other portion of it actually does move down into soil, and uh, again is either taken up by the roots in in, in plants or is is held by the soil. Uh, until the plants need it for growth. Some of it, however, continues to move down into a saturated area. And once it gets down into that saturated area, we call it groundwater, all right? Now, when it's in groundwater there, it's not static. That groundwater also moves. It moves much, much slower than surface water. It tends to. Um, but groundwater then is, you, it, is, uh, is we, we watch it as we move, or as it moves rather, uh, through the ground. Water moves down through the ground in these groundwater systems. Again, also driven by gravity uh, until it gets to places, uh, low areas. It could be a wetland, it could be a lake, um, it could be uh, typically a stream or a river. And that's where groundwater is feeding up into these surface water bodies. And that's why, for example, you could have protracted times of drought, of dry periods, uh, typically, say, in the in the late summer or through the fall in Pennsylvania. Uh, we might not have had rain for weeks and weeks or even a couple of months, and yet the streams are still flowing. That's because of groundwater. That water is coming to those streams from the groundwater, and that's why um, they continue to flow. So that's basically the hydrologic cycle that we have. Um, and 
you know, you can see, and I'm sure we'll get into some discussion of these, you can see how some of these patterns can be disrupted or influenced or be influenced by different human activities. And again, I think that's some of the some of the issues that we're going to be getting to um, here through the rest of this session. Yep, thank you. Thank you, my friend, for putting that uh, out there to give us that base. Uh, and let's hear uh, from uh, Dr. Elliot, uh, who I believe will be joining us here in just a moment. And I know that she has some introductory materials as well uh, to help start us off. Uh, Dr. Elliot, when you're ready. OK, here we go. Got the camera on and are, are you seeing my slides? Uh, we do see them, Doctor. I don't know if you can make it a little bit bigger there, but we do yeah. we do see them. OK. Um, let's see. Is there that better? Go. OK. Yeah. Thanks. All right. So um, thank you, Representative Miller. So I, uh, again, want to echo what Dr. Warner said and um, just send my appreciation to Representative Miller for providing this opportunity. It's not often that we get questions about, um, you know, sort of summarizing the things that we, we work on day in and day out. And it's just real, it's a real pleasure to, to have somebody and one of our local officials acknowledge the importance of water um, in the world that we're living in right now. And so I just appreciate the opportunity to be here. So um, again, I'm at the University of Pittsburgh and um, I was gonna uh, hone in a little bit on what Dr. Warner was talking about and speak more specifically about water in our region. Um, so I, I live in Squirrel Hill and I drink water from the Allegheny River. Um, those of you that live in the South Hills, um, when you turn on your tap, you more than likely are drinking water from the Monongahela River. Um, so um, we here at the University of Pittsburgh are a group of faculty and grad students that work alongside with community partners um, to, to do research and education and training around um, different water-related challenges in the area. So I'm going to keep my remarks very, very brief, but I did want to mention that one of the organizations that we've worked with for a while is Watersheds of South Pittsburgh, um, which is a great organization there in the South Hills that's been working on um, getting some restoration activities together in Sawmill Run and in Streets Run. Um, and bringing it uh, to a state level, if you look across the state of Pennsylvania, there are actually six major watersheds in the state. Um, some, so any rain that lands on any land surface in one of those six areas will drain to that specific watershed. So the water that you're, you know, that I pull out of my tap from the Allegheny River may have started in New York as a raindrop on Seneca Nation land uh, just above the Pennsylvania border and, and come down through the Allegheny River um, um, to us here in Pittsburgh. Similarly, for those that are drinking water from the Monongahela, that water could have originated uh, as far away as, as West Virginia. Um, and so we live here in the Pittsburgh region at the confluence of those two rivers. And the Ohio River starts in Pittsburgh, and it is one of the biggest rivers in the country. And um, it flows 981 miles until it reaches the Mississippi River in Cario, Illinois. So we literally are the headwaters of the Ohio River. Um, and headwaters are very important um, for lots of reasons in watersheds, but a lot of the most important processing of nutrients um, and other things happens in the headwater regions. And so, Headwater regions are, are imperative for um, river restoration. So the other thing I'll say is I get asked a lot about water quality and has the water gotten better? Um, and I relay a story that I read, an uh, anecdote about um, one of the, the barge ships um, that used to, the barges that run up and down the river because it's a working river, um, the hulls of those ships were designed to last about 20 years. 
Um, but before the Clean Water Act, the water was so acidic in the Mon that they would only last three years. Um, so since that time, water quality has improved dramatically, but we still have a long ways to go. Um, and in Pennsylvania, in particular, a half century after the Clean Water Act, um, the Ohio River which Basin, which spans 15 states, is still the most polluted river in the country. Um, nearly 15% of the entire nation's pollutant load under the permitting system is discharged in Pennsylvania. Um, and the Commonwealth ranks fourth in the nation for permanent discharges to waters. So we have come a long ways, but we there's so much more we can do. Um, and happy to answer any any questions about that. So again, um, thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you, uh, Doctor. We appreciate it. Uh, and let's go to uh, Susan Weaver, um, who I, I also uh, believe she has a couple things to help us uh, get started. So, Susan, thank you. Are you able to see my slides? We see them, Susan. If there's a way you could bring them a little bit bigger, but we do see them. And that's okay if you. If, if. There okay. You. Thank you. Thanks. I wanted to thank Representative Miller for this opportunity as well. Um, it's not every day that we get to talk a little bit about the work that we do. I will talk very briefly about the Pennsylvania State Water Plan today with um, the title of our session is State of Pennsylvania Water. So I think it's really appropriate to talk about that. Um, in the drafting of the Pennsylvania State Water Plan, this is a very familiar map that you just saw from Dr. Elliott. We have six watersheds across the state, the Ohio River, Susquehanna River, Delaware River, Potomac River, and then the Great Lakes, which includes both Lake Erie and the Genesee River, which is that little piece up there at the top in central, uh, central PA, northern central PA. With crafting the state water plan, we worked with over 100 committee members and just released our final state water plan. It's an update from 2022. We released it earlier this year. It is a document that looks at many broad issues that affect Pennsylvania. And it is something more of a policy document with recommendations. Um, one of the really exciting pieces is the collection of water data and the water that's being used in the state. One of the projects that we completed in addition to the state water plan was our digital water atlas. I'll show you here are the links to both our state water plan and our digital water atlas. They're really meant to be educational tools, at least the water atlas is, and that I would encourage all of you to check it out. Um, it's something that we're very excited about and we hope to be able to add additional information as time goes on. But it really, it, it covers the items that both Andrew and Emily spoke of with regard to the hydrologic cycle, our watersheds across the state, um, improving water quality, and just all of the issues that we have. One of the um, points I wanted to make with the state water plan was even though it was a statewide policy document, 
we had six regional committees and these regional committees were based on our watersheds across the state. So we had an Ohio regional committee that worked on priorities for the, the Ohio River Basin here in Pennsylvania. And I would like to mention that both drought and flooding were issues that were mentioned by the Ohio Water Resources Regional Committee. And I believe those are issues that um, are, are important for you. Our state water plan is not a regulatory document. It's voluntary. It's something that we put together priorities, recommendations, and we hope that over time, the those priorities and recommendations will be implemented. Um, it's something that I think when we start working together to identify our issues, we can then work together to find solutions. Um, one of the interesting things is our water use data has shown that as our, you know, we, we know our water quality has improved in many areas. As we mentioned earlier, we still have a ways to go, but our water use, the amount of water that we're using has decreased across the state of Pennsylvania. Um, one of the biggest reasons is we no longer have power companies that are using lots and lots of water, um, that, that they have either changed how they're using water or they've shut down and they're being replaced by other systems. Um, so we look at the water use trend across the state and have found that we have plenty of water in the state and it's something that um, being the Commonwealth Drought Coordinator, I, I will say that we, we do experience dry spells um, and perhaps we'll get into a little bit more of that um, when we get into our question and answer session. But that's all I have for now. And um, welcome to answering questions with our other presenters. Thank you. Well, thank you, Susan. And we'll invite everybody to uh, to join us um, back up here with it. And, and I want to thank everybody. Obviously, we not only did we uh, kind of shortchange their bios because they're all so accomplished, uh, but I know they each one of our guests could could give us hours and hours of, of very useful uh, and informative um, information. Uh, but we're glad to have uh, their time here. We're going to go back and forth on a couple things. And uh, first, and look, I'm 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 sure you you all kind of get this. Uh, you know, whenever there is something that's big in the news, uh, and it, you know, usually something that's negative that's happened. Uh, you know, we, I know my office gets inundated with people asking questions about the topic. Very understandable. Uh, so we clearly, especially, uh, you know, I, I know uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Elliot would know this uh, here, but here in Western PA, we are obviously close to uh, the uh, train derailment right across the border in Ohio. So so first, I had no idea I should have even asked this here for you guys ahead of time, but um, uh, does this at all impact um, Western PA's drinking water and please uh maybe dr elliott but anybody who would like to jump on in with some thoughts appreciate it i can i can head off the response for that and the answer is no um the all of the water that that we drink is, is from upriver of where we live um and so the Unfortunately, the people that would be impacted by um, problematic drinking water are all located in the region of East Palestine and drinking water intakes along the Ohio River that are downriver from there. So primarily um, in Ohio and, and further downriver. Well, and let's stay with this uh, topic for a moment because I, I do remember the, you know, the color coded maps in there too. So, uh, you know, appreciate that. Let's assume, though, instead, uh, God forbid, um, uh, a train accident of a similar scope were to occur in Pennsylvania. Okay, um, and uh, you know, somewhere in the, the maybe in the middle of state, somewhere by Andrew, right? So let's assume that somewhere in the middle of state we have uh, uh, something like this here, which um, 
you know, is close, uh, maybe close to a river, maybe not close to a river. Um, how do we know or where does the examination of our water for such an incident, where does it occur? Who, who does that? Who checks to be sure that if there is a similar situated train uh, disaster that is either close to a water supply or maybe even not, what do we do to check? How do we check that that water, that the contamination is, is not dangerous? I can weigh in on that, you would like. Please. With spills that occur, um, the Department of Environmental Protection Emergency Response Group is out there on site. Um, we are notified or we're supposed to be notified of spills or accidents or fires that may impact the ground, the water, and the air we breathe. Um, so with our emergency response team, they're out there on site helping to coordinate what to do. Typically, they're working with what whoever the responsible entity is. They're working with the fire department, emergency response coordinators, and, and in a safe manner, will work to decide how to collect samples, where the samples need to be sent, what types of analysis need to be done. You know, if it's near a water body, putting up booms, um, you know, putting up those big socks to divert water, um, creating areas to collect water, um, taking all of the precautions that are needed to ensure that whatever has occurred stays on site and is remediated in an appropriate and timely manner. Um, I think one of the things that um, is very important is, you know, public health, public safety, um, making sure that if it is a chemical that's spilled, you know, we know what it is, we know what, you know, it can do, we know the appropriate tests to do. Um, typically, there's a lot of monitoring that occurs, and depending on what happened, there will be long-term monitoring um, to ensure that if something spilled and it seeps into the ground, we're collecting soil samples and, and perhaps okay. we're even drilling monitoring wells to ensure that we know, you know, whether or not there's going to be an impact on our groundwater. Um, it's something that, you know, I think our the Department of Environmental Protection is very, very proud of the response that we have for these types of incidents. Um, so it, so it's something that it's good to know. We we do that. So you guys, so you got you guys have monitoring well capability. So even if it doesn't go into directly into a river, you could go and, and you will these monitoring wells you guys will stall into the ground uh, by a site that how far down do they go? It really depends on local conditions. Um, geology changes across the state and depending on the type of chemical, if it is a chemical that's spilled. How quickly does that chemical travel through the soil? Um, so it, it can be fairly shallow wells that might be, you know, 10, 20 feet deep, or it could be very, very deep wells. It's, it's very site specific on what's the most appropriate way to monitor and make sure, you know, we understand what's happening so that action can be taken. Well, and um, I appreciate it. I, I know we when we scheduled this, there was no train uh, disaster. So, but I, I, I do want to just, just so I get it to, um, if there is, let's just say one, this incident occurred uh, by a, um, a, you know, very close to a river um, uh, for us in Pennsylvania. Um, is it the state that uh, that comes in and, and, and does that testing and monitoring? Or, or is it the, the feds that come in and do that? I think depending on the activity, for the most part, it's the state. Um, but I'm I'm not 
as well-versed in emergency response authority. Um, but I think for the most part, it is the state. But because, you know, if it is crossing a border and there needs to be coordination between two states, that there might be federal agencies involved as well to help sort out what's happening. Okay, and before we move off uh, of this, just uh, is it uh, are, is there testing done for our our? You guys went through all six uh, of uh, you know sort of the water areas there. Are we testing on a daily or is it a weekly basis, monthly basis? How often are we testing to be sure that the quality of our water uh, is not being negatively impacted, maybe by some industrial activity or something that maybe we don't even know? Is that a, how common are we testing? Feel free. That's well, I, I was going to say, I can take it or, or oh, someone else. Let's go to Andy. Yeah, I feel like I, he's ready on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can I can start, but it's actually one of those questions that on, on the on the face of it is is pretty direct and, and comes across as simple, but um, is is a lot more complicated. You know, if you look statewide, for example, um, you know, you could say that there's extensive monitoring that's going on. Uh, some of that's done by DEP, some of that's done by federal agencies like the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, some of that's done um, by research institutions, whether it be Penn State or Pitt or or others that were that were blessed to have across the Commonwealth. Um, for different reasons, however, um, you know, so the the researchers might be focused on particular questions that call for a, a, a very specific monitoring design. That is where they're monitoring, what they're monitoring for, how often, you know, the frequency of monitoring. Um, those things will be uh, driven by the research questions that they're asking. Um, the kind of thing that I think you're getting at, though, is more um, is more sort of um, baseline and status and trends. That is, uh, you know, some of what D Dr. Elliott was pointing to. Um, you know, is water in Pennsylvania cleaner or less clean than it was? Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I spent some time, um, you know, south of Pittsburgh. My dad taught at Duquesne, and uh, and that was. I'll date myself. Uh, <laughs> that was late 60s, early 70s. You know, Forbes Field was still standing. Um, and, you know, at the time, the rivers and frankly, the air were, were, not, were not real great. Um, they're far better now. So these investments that we've made in this country through things like the Clean Water Act um, pay massive dividends, massive dividends to improve public health, to improved broader environmental health that we know is absolutely critical for um, not just reducing costs for things like water supply treatment, um, but also Im improving the environment for things like recreation and commercial activities that rely on clean, reliable water supply systems. So when it comes to monitoring, uh, you know, if you ask the scientists, the engineers, they'll always say more monitoring is better, um, which, which is true. Uh, you know, you can't manage what you don't monitor. That's true in business as it is in the environment. Um, and so I, I would say, um, you know, in some places we're probably doing a pretty good job. One area that I do want to point to that I hope we'll maybe begin to have some discussion around uh, relates to private wells um, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania has the second largest population uh, that is served by individual private wells that are, you know, um, um, private homes, in, typically in uh, rural, sometimes suburban neighborhoods that aren't served by public water supply systems. We've got about 3 million people, almost 25% of our population that's served by, you know, the, the straw that they have <laughs> in their backyard that they sink down into groundwater and they pull up the water. And we are one of maybe two, perhaps three states in the nation that have zero statewide regulations when it comes to how wells are designed, how they're constructed, and whether or not they're monitored and tested. Uh, we give no support to private landowners who rely on this, who, who rely on the source of water to, you know, to, to, to give to their kids, to cook their meals, to, to bathe in. Um, so we're talking about 25% of our population that's served in that way. Um, and that's a that's a that's a form of water insecurity that that about a quarter of our population exists under on a day to day basis. 
Well, I, yeah, Dr. Elliott, please. I, I was just going to add two other points. Those are all excellent. Um, in terms of the the monitoring of the water that we have out in the environment, um, it is absolutely critical that the U.S. Geological Survey continue to receive funding to do the legwork that's needed to collect samples, to do water quality monitoring and water flow monitoring. So they can measure how much water is coming through an area, but they can also do water quality monitoring, but it is expensive. Um, and I feel like every year, uh, I used to work for the USGS, uh, they, they would be on the chopping block. Um, but when something bad happens, you need that data to be able to tell whether you're getting long-term improvements um, or if you're having sort of immediate impacts. Um, and just as a corollary to what Dr. Warner was saying about groundwater, um, folks that live in the South Hills in particular would be drinking uh, water from Ameri Pen Pennsylvania American water, I guess. And um, drinking water utilities are required to, to test their water and to send any, um, they have to report any violations. So in the mail, uh, you should receive along with your water bill some notification on an annual basis, I think, about whether your water utility had any exceedances for the suite of chemicals that EPA regulates drinking water quality for. Doctor, uh, um, and I apologize, I didn't know doc that and Andy's a doc. Who else no. is a doc? Andy's not a doctor. I'm not. Okay. I'm, I'm not a doctor. I, I. I need to. Yeah, I need to stop people. I think people assume because I'm based at a university that I'm a doctor. Oh. But I. I. You know, yeah. it, despite 35 yeah. years of experience, I have not earned that honor. So well, <laughs> your, your, your knowledge. Your knowledge is impressive. I'd give you. I'd give you. PhD is fine. But like, uh, I just want to. Sure. So, uh, uh, Dr. Elliot is. Uh, you can just call me uh, Emily. Emily, in relation to the uh, uh, to other states. Is Pennsylvania testing the quality of its water enough? Uh, sort of, uh, are we kind of typical or, or are we below? I'm going to tell you what you probably already know, and that is a disproportionate amount of resources go to watersheds and monitoring sites in the Chesapeake Bay watershed in the eastern part of the state and to the little parts of Pennsylvania that drain into Lake Erie. Um, in the Ohio River Basin, there is a pretty much dearth of available water quality um, data, especially in a long-term basis. And the good news is that there is a group of elected officials and the National Wildlife Foundation that are working to address that. And in this session of Congress, I think we'll be introducing an Ohio River restoration bill that would release some federal funding um, to, to make things more equitable in terms of the monitoring landscape. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, before I, uh, Andy, you brought up uh, the private wells. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. Was not thinking about the private wells whatsoever. Um, so 25% some 3 million people uh, dependent upon it. Were you saying that um, every other state has some um, regulation? in relation to the safety of the private wells and, and we do not? Yes. All right, now why would, yes. why would that be, why would that be the case you think? Um, well, that I, that's a good question. I, I don't, it's not a, it's not a technical question. I think it's, it's, uh, I suspect a political question. Um, okay. you know, there are, uh, you know, reasons certain legislations passed in some some states and not in other states. And can can, can you give me the two biggest benefits of of having regu regulation in private wells? Can, what are the two benefits we should be? Yeah. Considering? So I would say I would say two benefits. Um, it it benefits the people who who are relying on those on on those wells to to meet the needs of themselves and their families. You know, it's the water that they're giving their kids. It's the water that they're drinking, um, um, you know, on a daily basis. Or, or the way water insecurity plays out, it can actually be a little um, more complicated. Though it's not a matter of like, gosh, I'm just I'm drinking 
water that's poor quality. Sometimes that's the case, but oftentimes it's the case where um, in, in these circumstances where there's no support, no regular testing, no monitoring of those wells, which as, as, as Emily said, it, it can be expensive, but even basic monitoring, which is not exceedingly expensive, tends not to be done either because of lack of education or lack of resources. Um, you know, for a, a, a private person to pay regularly for the, for the monitoring can be prohibitive, prohibitively expensive, but benefits. Um, if uh, it's it's a matter of, of of ensuring that the quality of the water that our 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 citizens, the citizens of Pennsylvania, are drinking is clean, uh, we know if it's not, there are direct health benefit or uh, um, impacts, adverse health impacts um, that are you know range. They're a spectrum, anything from you know cancer outcomes to things that are you know things like uh, uh, gastrointestinal discomfort. You know much more. Um, you know, um, uh, less serious and life-threatening, but some that are life-threatening. Yeah. The other thing is poorly designed, poorly sited, poorly constructed wells are also conduits for contamination to get down into groundwater. So if you ask me the two benefits, I would say it's benefiting the people who are drinking the water from the well, and it's also benefiting broader the broader population of Pennsylvania by helping to protect groundwater quality over the long term. Well, and before we move on with it, uh, just in in the other states or that you're a bit familiar, that cost of of um, of testing the private wells is that is that borne by the the property owner owners? Is something the state comes in? What who does? Yeah, it? yeah, okay. that's a, it's a yeah, it's a very good question. We actually have a, a team of us here who are looking at this issue of water and security across Pennsylvania that includes. Um, both urban and rural uh, citizens, uh, water supply issues, you know, of course, that are very different if you're in a place like P Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Harrisburg versus, you know, rural Pennsylvania. But we're looking at it collectively as as a water insecurity issue. And the number actually goes up when you include the the, the urban areas to closer to probably four million people uh, because of different issues, things like lead in pipes, that kind of thing. Um, but but to answer your question about other regulations, uh, the costs of of uh, that are being born in other states. How are those? How are those costs um, uh, addressed? Um, uh, we're, you know, that's a work in progress for us. We've got some folks from our law school who are involved in looking at um, policy innovations, uh, and they're starting by doing kind of a benchmark exercise, looking at all fifty states, um, looking at at evaluating those, and and getting at those sort of programmatic decisions, which which relate to you know how the programs are managed, but also the associated costs with those. Um, so uh, that's kind of a non-answer, and I apologize for that. <laughs> no, we're, no, no. We're working on it. I appreciate it. Let's go to Susan. If, if I may, just a, a point of clarification. When we talk about private homeowner wells, private water supplies, there is a lack of construction standards for drilling new wells. So yeah. when we talk about Pennsylvania re relative to the rest of the country, we do not have private water well construction standards. So when a well driller is drilling a new well, they may or may not be using appropriate construction standards. Um, one of the things Andy mentioned was monitoring of private wells. Some of, I just wanted to clarify that some of the efforts within Pennsylvania to propose private water well construction standards, we've never gone down the path of talking about monitoring the sources, you know, and placing a financial burden on homeowners. We, we look to private water well construction standards, but not necessarily monitoring of that water. Um, just wanted to make sure you understood that monitoring is yeah. a totally different can of worms. Um, yeah. And there have been multiple attempts for adopting private water well construction standards over the past 40 years. Um, and it's it's something it's the number one recommendation in the state water plan that we just adopted right. Right. Um, that 
you know, all of our regional committees and our statewide committee, that it was their number one re recommendation that, you know, Pennsylvania needs to adopt private water well construction standards. Well, I appreciate it. Let's go to Andy and then I want to see if I can shift gears for a moment. Andy? Yeah, just to, and thank you, Susan, for putting a finer point on that maybe than I did in, in initially articulating it. But but for context, uh, I, if the numbers are still accurate, I think there's something like 20,000 wells, private drinking well, uh, water wells that are that are installed a year in Pennsylvania uh, is the number I've seen, unless I'm off. Uh, number seems high to me, but um, anyway, that aside, your your point about the monitoring as as a different issue is is uh, is well worth clarifying. I appreciate that, um, and I did want to give a shout out to the extension folks that are here at Penn State because they also have a master well owners uh, group that they that they are very actively and for and for many many years have been very actively involved with and supporting. Um, so our extension uh, program here. Uh, does offer support to to private well owners who are interested in in having their wells tested and and uh, and we do that um, I think on a pretty regular basis to the to the degree that our resources allow. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you both, uh, Emily. One of the topics that you and I kind of spitballed uh, a bit together uh, was the question about uh, you know what what is the trend? What are we doing? Uh, you know, is Pennsylvania seeing? You know, uh, too much water here. Um, you know, too little water there, and and what we should be doing with that information. So first, just as far as the trends that 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 you're seeing, um, especially I guess first out here in Western PA, what well, what are we seeing? What's our water trend? So we're seeing more water. We're seeing higher frequency of intense rain events, um, particularly in the winter and springtime. Um, and so, you know, as researchers, we're sort of trying to understand what that means because those events can then be followed by extreme dry periods. And so you have these kind of wild fluctuations um, that that are are difficult to try to understand the impact on the entire ecosystem and on human health. Um, but certainly what we've seen, in the Pittsburgh region um, in terms of water is increased precipitation, more extreme events, more flooding in small communities, um, also higher temperatures in urban areas, um, for sure. You know, and I, I, Susan, correct me on this too, but we're also seeing, I, I, I'm pretty sure I saw up to like 16 counties were in a drought status at some point last year. Um, we're we're also seeing that too, right? Correct. We were in a, a fairly mild drought last year. It started in the middle of the summer. Um, we were seeing precipitation deficits that um, continued to increase. When it stops raining, we start seeing stream flows drop. And then ultimately we see groundwater impacted that levels drop, but it takes a while with groundwater. But we had um, 32 counties were in a drought watch declaration in late summer. And as we started to see rain falling in the fall, we started getting some precipitation, some regular precipitation. We started moving counties out of the drought watch. Um, we also have a very strong focus on our public water suppliers and how they are doing with the lack of rain. That when we see water suppliers asking for voluntary or requiring mandatory water conservation, we um, we really want to be able to support them with a, a drought watch declaration if that's appropriate so that they can say to their customers, hey, it's really dry. We've got a drought watch going on. Please reduce your water usage so that you know we have enough water if things get really bad. Um, we did right. come out of the drought in early January, um, finally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and look, obviously, uh, uh, you know, I think I might have shared this with Emily back in the in the day uh, with it, but you know, uh, I was a firefighter here in town for uh, a, a good amount. I, what catches my eyes often is uh, is the West, which uh, you know every year or so looks like you know thirty percent of it is is burning somewhere, 
Right. So, um, but uh, from, I guess, a, a two-part question here, I know our time will wind down, but uh, so both on the state side and let's just, let's just say on the municipal side, okay, when it comes to our management, our water management, can you guys give me a, a state idea of what we should be doing and a local idea of what we should be doing to be sure that um, access uh, to water and, and, and what to do with it there um, um, is where we need it to be. So, um, Emily? Yeah, I was just going to start off and then I'll let others follow on that. In, in our neck of the woods in the Ohio, the Ohio is a highly regulated water system. Um, and the flows that we see here in Pittsburgh are regulated by a series of locks and dams starting all the way up in New York. Um, and so I feel like they, the Army Corps of Engineers, monitors very closely the reservoir levels and they will release water accordingly so that they can try to anticipate whether there will be a drought in the summer and they will change how much water they release in the winter um, from their storage. So there are folks that are working on this at that sort of larger scale. I'm less familiar uh, with the eastern side of the state, even though that's where I'm from. But um, uh, I think here, like we're, we're pretty well protected in terms of having access to, to water and, and um, it being fairly well regulated because all of that came about because of the 1936 flood in Pittsburgh. And that's what initiated that spurt of dam building um, that helps regulate our flows here. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, I, um, I guess state statewide, and, and I'll apologize for, for Susan uh, for this because I know she, she wears that had as, as, as uh, you know, the uh, under drought watch and, and drought management. Um, but I, I, I don't, um, a drought for me when I look at Pennsylvania is not, I don't put it in as kind of a top tier concern. Um, you know, I don't think we happily, um, you know, face the same challenges that they've got, you know, across the Western United States. I mean, it's just obviously climatically a, an extremely different area. Um, you know, and our projections are with climate change uh, that we're going to become increasingly wet. And as, as Emily said, we're we're seeing that and the projections are, I think, by 2015 that we'll get or 2050 that we'll get to something like uh, an additional 8% wetter on average. Now, part of the issue there is um, not just the amount of water, but how it's delivered. And again, Emily was talking about this um, and this kind of transitions to one of the key challenges that I think we face statewide, which is around the flooding question. Um, and we know flooding right already is the most damaging natural disaster in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and I think that's going to only continue. Um, and I think there are things that we can and need to be doing at the federal level, at the state level, and certainly at, at, at the local level as well. Um, you know, we need to be thinking across all of those scales. Um, we do have groups um, uh, that that you know at the state level that that are addressing flood risk. I think there's a lot that local communities can do to access those resources to help guide them in decision making. I know local pressures are all about development and increasing tax base, um, but one of my big concerns on that front is that 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 driver will outweigh the concerns of future flood risk, and that we'll see ongoing development in areas that are flood prone. And that puts people at risk and it puts infrastructure at risk. Um, and so that's one of my biggest concerns. I also think, again, statewide, we've got problems that are legacy problems when it comes to water quality. You know, we've got about a third of our rivers and streams that don't meet their designated uses under the Clean Water Act. Um, you know, if if my kids, when they were in school age, got came home with, a, you know, a a 67% on their test, I wouldn't be particularly happy. And I think we need to not be particularly happy with the quality of our streams and rivers. Um, despite, as Emily pointed out, we've seen massive gains. So we know that the investments that we make to improve the quality of our water pays dividends. We just need to, we just need to reinvest the way our parents and our grandparents did to make our waters better um, and to do so for our, for our kids and for their future. So flooding and uh, addressing some of these legacy problems such as, you know, ag-based, um, you know, water quality degradation, um, but also legacy um, acid mine drainage problems, those kinds of things. 
um, that that we're I think getting better at how to address those. And and I will say with federal dollars coming in from the bipartisan infrastructure bill, we're going to have hundreds of millions of dollars um, on the policy and programmatic side. One of my biggest concerns is that we're going to invest 21st century dollars in 20th century solutions. We know better than that. So this is a plea, Representative Miller, to please, you know, continue to be, you know, on the forefront and and pushing for progressive solutions, solutions that are forward looking, not just reliant on what we did. You know, uh, you know, this is, we don't need our parents Oldsmobile, as it were. We need to invent a new a new vehicle. Uh, thank you, uh, Susan. I'll just uh, end with, I agree with everything that uh, Emily and Andrew were mentioning. I believe flood risk will continue to be and grow as an issue for Pennsylvania, um, particularly with increased precipitation coming down in you know much greater intensity. Um, I think that the more we can do to have development not occur in the floodplain is good and that this is an issue that we continue, you know, that we need to look for solutions that are not always concrete pipes and diversions, but using more green infrastructure and wetlands and, you know, riparian buffers, things that perhaps people who expect manicured lawns aren't really excited about, but at the end of the day, those natural resources have huge benefits. Um, and I, I wish we can start pushing folks more towards the naturalization of areas so that we have that improved environmental benefit. Yeah. Thank well, listen, you. I, thank you. And I, and I appreciate it. I'm going to do this one last bit, hopefully just, um, and I know we're uh, um, yes, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I just want to, I spent time as a commissioner in Mount Lebanon, um, and uh, I just actually had a commissioner in here from Baldwin Township. Uh, as mentioned, uh, we are under a federal consent decree here, uh, and we've seen local communities adopting stormwater uh, fees, um, uh, you know, some type of stormwater management plan to help sort of uh, direct resources in. Um, somebody had given this uh, to me recently, um, detailing um, the, you know, where water travels once it leaves my house in Mount Lebanon um, through, um, you know, basically every town, uh, including going south to Upper St. Clair before coming back up uh, and through pipes, some of which are, 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 are very are old, are old. So uh, it is amazing to me the route uh, that that this uh, takes. Um, so just one last, when it comes to a township, okay, a township, um, whether it's making sure that, that stormwater uh, management is a priority, whether it's talking on the individual side of homes. Uh, I saw like Las Vegas and their management was doing a whole variety of code changes uh, to to how they, they, they deal with uh, rain. Um, Knowing that we have so many communities, especially in Western PA, but around it, uh, our, our state, we have Western PA, where we know we're getting more water. We're going to continue to get more water. If you were to advise a, a, a community, a town, tell me the one thing you definitely would tell them that they should be doing right now. So, Emily? Yeah, so I dropped in the chat a link to... Uh, Connects Climate Action Plan, which is a group here at Pitt that is a Congress of neighboring communities that actually came up with like a workbook of things you can do. But beyond that, I want to say it's absolutely imperative that we support the Department of Environmental Protection, that they have full budgets to have enforcement officials, and that those enforcement officials are held to accountability by elected officials. You know, you have to be funding the folks that that do the permitting and the enforcement. I mean, their their budgets have been pretty dire. Well, slashed. I, I think the I think our state um, you know agency there has been cut drastically in 15 years. Um, right, Susan? Is that right? No, Susan's saying they have too much money. <laughs> you have too much. We we've been downsized over the past 10 to 15 yeah, years. Downsized. All right. So Emily says that towns should be 
encouraging state officials to make sure DEP is funded uh, appropriately. Andy, give me some. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of piggyback of, of what Emily was saying. Um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, that um, that there are some great resources. You know, there, every state has a a silver jackets program which is focused on flooding. I'm getting back to the flood risk, and I think that's where one of our key issues is going to be uh, in the in the coming years and decades. Silver jackets is a federal uh, uh, state partnership. Uh, you know, involving the Army Corps of Engineers and other federal agencies, as well as the appropriate state agencies, um, and and those uh, that that partnership also has great resources that they can bring to bear and and helping to guide local uh, jurisdictions. And I would encourage local jurisdictions to definitely tap into those resources as well um, for for not just guidance but potential sources of funding that can direct them in in improving the resilience of their communities. Um, and then otherwise, you know, I would just get back to, I, I guess, if you're talking about, you know, the small towns, um, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, some of the, the the water quality problems that perhaps impact them and, you know, the risks that their that their water supply uh, sources might might face and thinking about source water protection as a solution um, to, you know, to to maintaining uh, the long term quality of their water and their water supply, which, by the way, costs less. If you, you know, keep cleaner water, you have to put less into treating it. So it, you know, it's kind of a win win. Uh, thank you. I see Emily put a silver jackets link up in the oh, chat as well. You. Susan, tell, tell me something here on final thought here. What what can we challenge municipalities and boroughs to do here uh, in, in, in Pennsylvania? What What can we challenge them? I would encourage them to reach out to their neighbors and to collaborate and that working together because watersheds are beyond local boundaries and that if several of the local municipalities can work together to work on, you know, developing the same type of documents, the same kind of solutions, reaching out to watershed groups to help. Um, I think that they will see a lot more benefit in the long run because it's not just one individual little approval, but but starting to break down the municipal barriers that sort of generate over a long time. You know, I've I have stories where, you know, we we have two neighboring townships that won't talk to each other. And it causes huge increases in the water supplier because of duplicate yeah. duplication of what's happening. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. So now, work together. Who are, who are those towns, Susan? Go ahead. <laughs> no, all right. So look, thank you, thank you uh, so much. And and look, we're we we just went over our hour mark here. I always hate to do that to my guests, uh, but I want to thank so much. Uh, uh, all of their their information we have here. Uh, Andy Warner from uh, Penn State, Emily Elliott from uh, University of Pittsburgh, uh, Susan Weaver from PA's Department of Environmental Protection. I want to thank you guys at all. My feeling is I'm going to bother you again. All right. So, uh, but I very much appreciate you sharing your expertise uh, with us today. Um, water is important. Uh, the one of my uh, most impactful projects as an AmeriCorps and Triple C uh, member was to hit. Um, uh, a 30-foot uh, flood disaster that happened in Ohio years ago. Uh, and seeing the damage of that much water going through a valley, what it did to homes and communities and, um, you know, going through, trying to help people get um, uh, water-damaged items from their homes uh, to save any part of it. Uh, water is a fantastic um, a gift, uh, and it is also destructive uh, when 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 moving in a, in a in a direction right and so it is something that we have to think more about so thank you for educating me and hopefully educating a bit of our guests as well uh we th again thanks to all three of us thanks for everybody who who decided to watch and join us today we appreciate it. look for uh, another event i know my disability mental health summit i think is may 11th i think there's some more stuff before that too so uh hopefully you can check in with us later but thank you for joining us thank you thank you Bye. Bye.